Welcome to Published or Not. For over 20 years, we have been talking books. They may be crime, romance, history, short stories or adventure. And we delve a little further. We go into words and writing, character, plot and the whole process of creating a story. The we is, of course... Jan Goldsmith. David McLean and now... Lisa Moore. We are different, our reading interests are different, but each week we will be with an author who wants you to hear about their book. And that's here on Published or Not. So, let's meet some authors. Good morning. Today I have with me Kate Grenville. She has published 16 books and is one of Australia's most celebrated writers. In 2001, she won the Orange Prize for The Idea of Perfection, and in 2006, she won the Commonwealth Writers' Prize for The Secret River. Her latest book is called Restless Dolly Maunder, and today she is my guest. Welcome, Kate. It's lovely to be here, Lisa. Thanks for inviting me. Thank you so much for, for being here. It's a thrilling for me. Your newest book is a novel about your conflicted grandmother. Um, I read recently that you described your grandmother as brittle and skinny like a twig and uh, scary like Medusa. Why did you want to tell this story of your grandmother, Dolly Maunder? Um, look, I, I'm, I knew my grandmother a little bit. She came to live with us when I was about uh, five or six and I don't have many memories of that because she lived in the granny flat at the side of the house but I do have one vivid memory that stayed with me for all those years. I was playing in the garden sort of groveling around in the dirt which I love to do and suddenly I found her beside me and from my perspective you know down on the dirt little six-year-old she seemed this long tall scary kind of emanating a rather dark vibe old woman. Anyway she uh, she looked down and she said Kathy do you love me? And I was kind of um, flabbergasted. I'd never been asked that question before by anybody. I mean, my parents didn't need to ask. Um, So I looked up, and of course, as a well-brought-up child, you know, brought up to tell the truth, I looked up and I said no. And there was a look on her face then that uh, has stuck with me for all these years. So not long ago, I thought... I'm now about the age my grandmother was, actually, when she asked me that question. And I I have begun to think, all right, I've always kind of dismissed my granny as a a cranky old lady, but actually, what made her cranky? Nobody is born cranky. And above all, why, at the end of her life, did this cranky, cold, fairly unloving, according to my mother, woman, why did she want to know whether her granddaughter loved her. That kind of opened her up as a person. And I thought, okay, let's find out what made her the person she was. Really interesting. Um, I guess there's a lot more that goes underneath what she's really thinking or sort of subterranean thoughts, I guess. And I actually heard you describe her and women of her ilk as sort of extinct. Yes, Look, that's right. Uh, My grandmother was born in 1880 and she was born not into the gentry at all. She was born to a a rural working class family on a very poor farm. 
Um, her parents were illiterate. In fact, all her, all her, basically all her family before her had been illiterate. So that's the background she came from. No, no privilege or anything else like that. Um, but she was, she must have been, I think, a dynamic, clever woman, and um, she wanted to be. A, pr- a public education came along just in time, so that she was actually sent to school, unlike her older brothers and sisters. You know, that that bit of intervention by government in 1880 to say all children are obliged to go to school a certain number of days a year, it saved her life. Um, So when she was 14, when she left school, as everybody did in those days, uh, she said to her father, I'd like to train to be a teacher. I want to be a pupil teacher. And he apparently slapped his hand on the table and said, over my dead body, any daughter of wow. mine goes out to work because it would shame him. It would make it look as if he couldn't afford to keep her. Um, and I think that wound stayed with her her whole life, mm. that frustration. So I think what I'm winding my way around to is that those that whole generation was kind of silenced. We know quite a lot about the top lot, you know, the ladies and gentlemen who left diaries and letters and journals and all that stuff. Women like my grandmother left nothing. I have one letter from her, not a very revealing one. Um, it's like a whole species has disappeared from that particular bit of the landscape of the past. And when I was writing this book, um, I watched one night on television, you know those things where they um, get an almost extinct species, some little numbat or something. Yeah. They take it away and breed it up and then they bring it back and release it into the wild. And there was one of those oh. moments on telly. They open the cage, it <laughs> sticks its little nose out and then it looks around and it scuttles off into the bushes. Mm. And, I, and it then becomes an essential part of the ecosystem of that place, without which that place isn't complete. And I thought, that's kind of what I'm doing here. I'm re reintroducing an almost extinct species, that is, working-class women of the late 19th century. Incredible. And what an in- incredible image that you've left us with as well to see that. So how then um, do you think this new species affects our, our current culture and perhaps um, your readership or even people in your own family who have read about their their you know grand grandparent um dolly how how has it affected how do you think this type of research affects a culture i think it's really important i as i was writing it i realized that uh men from the same sort of social class as my grandmother are reasonably well represented people have done research uh, they often went off to fight. So, you know, the, the war records are a fantastic way of tracing men. Um, so there is a not bad... I mean, they're still under-talked under about, uh, but the women have vanished entirely, which means that men from really any kind of social class can think, all right, they were my forefathers. They can look back, and there are often family stories about them going to war or being good at cricket or something. Uh Family stories about women tend to be a bit thin on the ground. So that means that when women think, okay, where did I come from as a woman, not as an individual, but as a part of this group called women, there's a kind of, um, well, it's not only a very thin picture of the past, very impoverished because it leaves out 90% of the people, 
but it's also very misleading. It's skewed to the top lot sitting around doing a little spot of cross-stitch uh, while they dithered about who to marry. You know, that's the image we have of women of the past. Yeah. And it is so wrong. And it means that we, as women today, have a kind of uh, false and sort of, um, yeah, a sort of feeble, weak image of those women. My grandmother was an extremely, I mean, she did end up cranky. She was a tough, clever, determined, resilient, admirable woman. She fought her way out of a world that gave no space to women. And she created a space for herself. And in doing that, she created a space for her daughter, that is my mother, who in turn created it for me. So we owe those women a lot. They shouldn't be forgotten. I completely agree with you there. Um, Which brings me to a question. Um, Do you feel that there's a certain similarity or parallel you have with your grandmother in that sort of determined, strong way? (laughs) Look, I think if I'd been brought up in her milieu, I probably wouldn't have had the guts to do what she did. Uh, not so much guts. She was sort of thrust into various situations. She didn't have much control. But whatever, wherever she found herself, she kind of made it work. Um, have I done that? Look, I'd like to say I have, but I'm not sure. I think I'm a bit weak and feeble, actually, compared to Grandma. And perhaps it's because I've had relatively a very easy life. Well, you've certainly impacted so many people. So I wouldn't say weak and feeble at all. <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> I'd thank say you. a giant, really. Um, so can we talk a little bit about um, history and the process that you have when you come to write something? Um, I, I guess you must love research. Yes, no one who writes historical novels cannot love. In fact, it's the bit I like best, I think. Mm, yeah. Okay. And how do you, I, I guess because you, you explained that this um, species has become extinct, so was it really difficult to find good bits Look, it was. I had a few family stories via my mother, um, so that was good. I, I did have that basis. I had a couple of photographs, um, and I had nothing from Dolly herself. But those were enough to get going, and it is amazing. I also knew where various things happened. Uh, Dolly, Dolly married a guy, and they had a farm for a while, which then failed. And they then became, as my mother called it, gypsies. They bought and sold pubs in country New South Wales for the next decade. So every year they would sell the last one and buy another one, and each time they'd make a lot of money. Clever. So uh, Yes, very clever. Mm. She was a great businesswoman, I think. I wish Mm. I was. Um, But it meant that there were a lot of places that I could go to. I mean, I knew where they were. The thing is, the New South Wales State Archives had fabulous details about all the pubs that they had had. So that was the starting point. I could actually make a timeline. So I knew, I knew, for example, that they were only in each place for a year. And that in itself mm. is quite interesting. Why wouldn't you just go somewhere and, if it was nice, stay there for the rest of your life? Mm. That's why I think of her as restless. Exactly. Something drove her on. Mm. So I went to each of those places. And there is something, some magic happens when you're actually on the place. You don't think it will be. You think, oh, it'll just be another country town, another pub. Uh, but something always happens that you didn't expect. Oh, that's really interesting. So can you remember um, in your research when you're actually there in a certain place, can you remember a certain event perhaps or or something that did happen which you took note of and then included? 
Look, in each place there was a there was a different thing. Um, the last pub that they had was in Tamworth, mm-hmm. and it was the poshest hotel in Tamworth for a hundred years. It's been the top the top pub, and they bought it unfortunately in 1929, and they bought it freehold as well as the license and the lease. They bought the freehold, so they had to have a huge mortgage to buy it. Right. Um, but they were terribly proud of it. It was the pinnacle of their ambition to be in this particular pub. Now, when I went looking for it, um, you know, all those years later, in 2000 and something, I walked up and down the main street of Tamworth. It was a huge pub. It was the size of an ocean liner. I've wow. seen photos. Yeah. Walked up and down the main street thinking, okay, is it hiding behind Sports Girl and <laughs> all the rest of it? Um, it did not appear to be there. Finally, I asked someone and she looked at me. She knew why I was asking she immediately, this older woman, <clears throat> pardon me, she knew exactly why I was asking. And she knew Did she recognise you? Or? No, 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 no okay. not at all. But she knew that someone looking for the Caledonian Hotel in Tamworth uh, would be looking for family history, someone, oh, of, right. someone of my age. Okay. Anyway, she broke it to me that not only was the Caledonian, it had been knocked down and the Kmart had been built. No. On the spot, and in fact, she said, and she was kind of breaking the bad news to me bit by bit. In fact, where the Caledonian was is the parking lot of no. Kmart. <laughs> and I, I, I don't know what I mean. It was kind of. Uh, How did you whole, feel at that moment? A whole muddle of emotions. I thought, you know, yeah. Grandma and Grandpa would have just been heartbroken. Absolutely. That you know, the pinnacle of their career was now just a parking lot. So I went out and stood in the middle of the parking lot. I don't know why. And people were staring at this old lady taking a photograph of the parking lot. But somehow that warmed me towards her. I think it mm. said something about ambition. You know, how the mighty are fallen. Uh, they rose so high and yet they fell because, of course, in the Depression, a year after they bought the pub, they went bankrupt because the Depression That's right. hit. Yeah. So each place I went, there was a different – and because I'm not necessarily looking for facts, you know, I'm writing a novel. Mm. So that feeling of grief that I had about mm. the Cali being knocked down, I could sort of give that to her. Interesting. Whether or not she – I mean, she didn't know it was knocked down probably. I don't know actually when it was knocked down, but – it gave me a kind of emotional contact, even if it was a phony emotional contact, and that's what you need to write a novel, I think. Hmm. So um, you begin, you, you've got your plot points, essentially, haven't you? Because you've got all of these, you know, each year you've got a new place that they've been. Um, and so then, yeah, that gives you a structure, I guess. So then do you begin to hang your sort of emotional um, you know, webbing or, or, or curtains or whatever on, on that space? Is that how you go? That's exactly right. Mm. Every book that I've done, I think, starts with a timeline. Okay. There is just something about... So you can you can get an amazing amount of basic information from births, deaths and marriages, mm-hmm. those, those um, records, things like the archives, depending on what your parents or your grandparents did. Um, um, so... You've got a timeline, and that alone, as I say, tells you a great deal. Oh, okay, they stayed no time here and a lot of time there. Why? Um, and then, of course, you look at you start to look at stuff around them. I mean, of course, you look them up in Trove and so on, which is you know the ultimate resource for historical writing. Um, and in fact, Dolly is in Trove, 
um, at a at a dance at a local dance when she was oh. about twenty, and the man who's describing the event rather patronisingly, of course, describes her dress. So suddenly she's real. She's this young woman of twenty in what sounds like a rather nice dress, and she's been singled out by the journalists as being you know the first woman she describes. Um, so. Uh, you can then start to build up stuff around them. So, okay, there's nothing about Dolly, but this is a novel. So everything you find out is really aimed, once you've found out whatever facts you can, everything after that is aimed at getting that emotional connection, even if it's not strictly true. Mm, okay, yeah, and that's why it, it's it's fiction. It's yeah, fictional exactly. work. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, somewhere between fiction and non-fiction yeah. is, is where you sit. Um, so belonging is a recurrent theme in your work, particularly in The Secret River, but also with this one and, and the notion of being restless, mm. I guess it speaks to belonging again. And so I ask, what, what is it about belonging or not belonging as the case may be that, that really continues to pique your interest here? How interesting that you should ask, because that's exactly what I'm writing about at the moment. Oh. I hadn't really put two and two together and realised that it is a long theme. Look, the most fundamental answer, I think, is that as the descendant of a person who was transported here in 1806, as a person who can trace five generations back to the beginning of white Australia, um, as the person who's inherited that... There are a lot of things you have to do, and one of them is to say, okay, I'm on stolen land. I think that's a very basic thing. I do belong here. I don't have anywhere to go back to, and I love the place deeply, but I don't belong here in the same way that the first people belong here. Absolutely. So where do I go from there, from that? What do mm. I do with that? How do I... You know, how do I kind reconcile. of reconcile something? It's not even as strong as reconcile, although that would be nice. Maybe, maybe acknowledgement is really as far as I've got so far. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's the starting point, isn't it? Until mm. there's that acknowledgement, then nothing, nothing yeah, can happen exactly. beyond that. Thank you for answering that question. Um, so, in this book, you, you are. Uh, there are lots of challenges in writing about your family, aren't there? And I wonder, is there a comparison to writing um, other historical figures? What, what's the sort of the difference between writing about your own family and writing about other historical figures? Ah, look, I think I probably only really write about my own family or some version of them mm. um, in the historical things. Oh, no, Lillian's story, my very first book, yeah, was nothing That's to right. do with me. Mm. Um, look, in a funny way, I feel freer to make things up and to be slightly, um, you know, much more imaginative when it's my own family. I feel I kind of have a right to do that. Whereas, for example, writing about uh, B. B. Miles, who was the real-life model for Lillian in my first novel, um, I felt a deep responsibility to the facts and I did not want to go beyond them. In fact, in all my books, I don't want to go beyond the facts. I'm prepared to um, – I would never do anything that I know for sure didn't happen. So if I think it's plausible, then I'll be – I'll think, okay, that's that's possible. I'll put it in. So that's the, that's the kind of 
fence that I put around. I think every historical novelist probably yeah. draws that line in a different Just place. Just finding that essential truth of the character and it has yeah. its own little boundary line, I would imagine. Yeah. Yeah. So I understand your mother wrote her memoir mm-hmm. and um, you used those notes to write her biography as well. Um, are you writing your memoir? <laughs> <laughs> Look, um, my children have said to me, you know, there's a lot we don't know about your life, so please just write uh, uh, just a just a brief just a brief one, Mum. Mm. Um, so I'm scratching out a few but a few notes about it, but I'm finding it surprisingly difficult. There's something kind of that I don't enjoy about um, being quite as kind of self-centred as that, really. Um, and also, you know, your life, when you look at it in retrospect, it's a big muddle and there's a lot of bad things as well as good things, a lot of things you wish very deeply that you could have your time over and do again. I guess that's why it's uncomfortable. So I'm doing it, but um, kind of reluctantly. <laughs> <laughs> Please persist. <laughs> so um, is it because perhaps you, you, you enjoy that engaging your imagination when you write and perhaps when you're thinking or reflecting on your life, there's not that creative freedom perhaps? I think you're spot on. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. You're not going to, you're not going to be imagine, imagine around your own life because you know everything that happened. And I think the other great um, kind of disincentive is that feeling that on the one hand, the impulse is to let yourself off the hook, you know, not to tell the stories that make you look really dreadful. Yeah. Um, maybe to tell the ones where you come across as, you know, being pretty all right. So you've got to fight that. You've got to be aware of it, first of all, and fight it. Mm. And yeah, you know that anybody writing about themselves is kind of going to be swayed by self their own self-image which may not have actually much to do with what somebody else might think they are yeah it's a, it's a survival technique yeah I that's guess true. <laughs> yeah. that's so true yeah <laughs> so you have this internal struggle with yourself I will reveal this no I won't <laughs> constantly yeah. um now if you were asked the same question by your grandmother today the do you love me question um, would your answer have changed? Yes, it would have changed. Um, my answer was very brutal when I was six. It was just no. Now I would say, I wouldn't say yes, because I don't love her, but I would say, Grandma, I admire you for your incredible, energetic, ingenious way of turning a, a, a life without promise into a satisfying life. And I honour you and your whole generation of women for fighting uh, the brutal male world that didn't let women do anything. Um, And I could say I'm really sorry that I was so brutal 70-something years ago or 60-something years ago. Um, I know more now, so I (laughs) apologise. Would you say then that this book... um has a little message to yourself about making things come full circle or perhaps an atonement there? Or? Atonement, that's an interesting word. I think at my age you do look back and you do start to uh, think about atonement. I've just read David Marr's amazing book, um, Killing oh. for Country, mm-hmm. and he describes the writing of that book as a kind of atonement through writing. 
Okay. So I think um, you understand a lot more by the time you get to my age and you also know that there isn't a lot of time to kind of somehow work it out, somehow come to grips with it, if not come to terms with it. Mm. Okay. So, yeah. So could I ask you please to read from page 50? This this um, gives us just a little description of um, how, how Dolly sort of sees the, the contract of her marriage. It, it says a lot about the time, I think. It does. And I should add before I read it that, in fact, she picked rather well in picking Bert. Right. He was the son of a single mother. I think he understood how hard it was for women. Absolutely. So he was actually a pretty good choice. Yeah. Not a bad husband. The cold reality was that marriage for most people she knew didn't have much to do with romance. It was a contract the way Mr Murray, the teacher, had told them about Henry VIII and his wives. In Carababula, the contract was, if a woman wanted to have any kind of life, she had to pick a man who could support her. Her side of the bargain was to keep house and do the necessary in bed. On the man's side, if he wanted to have a woman, he had to earn the money to support her. On both sides, the whole business was pretty brutal. That was why people had to paper it over with the pretty stories and the, and the stories about love. Bert wasn't who she wanted, but there was this about him. She knew him. He was an easygoing enough fellow, a hard worker, not a drinker like a lot of men were, and didn't have that blustery, bullying way with women that so many men did, always putting you down. Thank you. That was incredible. I really loved reading this book. Thank you. Um, so could the word restless, in that sense, um, be an umbrella word for anger at displacement or inequality and an injustice for, for women at that time, do you think? That is really insightful. That is exactly right. I think uh, someone who was all her life as frustrated as Dolly must have been by the limitations of being a woman, uh, you would be inclined to just keep moving. Uh, first of all, to keep pushing. Um but also because uh, you would know that only in movement was anything going to improve, anything going to happen. And yes, I mean, to be surrounded by patronising men stopping you doing what you wanted to do, which, you know, I might add, most of us are not completely unfamiliar with even now, uh, it does make you restless. It makes you kind of irritated and um, sort of you want to elbow them out of the way mm. to get on with your life. Mm. What would you say to to people um, who believe that that women have found gender parity in in life? Uh, there was a recent statistic I heard that some huge amount of people think that we're we're equal in in modern day society. Wow. Well, for the men who think that, I can only say try being a woman for a while. <laughs> and for the women who think it, I think read a bit about our history and also read a bit about. Uh, well, first of all, how it is for most women in the world. I mean, we are unbelievably privileged here in Australia. But True. Think of Afghani women. Yeah. And, you know, that's just the worst end of the spectrum. Um, look, it's so much better even when I even than when I was growing up, mm. which was pretty awful. Um, it's so much better. But uh, I think women have a, basic, a very basic um, – uh, it's not a problem – the desire to have children – is something that shapes a lot of women's lives and it gives what you might call the system kind of power over us. You know, mm. I see young women juggling, you know, the, the domestic 
childcare and the desire to do something mm. uh, satisfying or professional. And that's got easier, but it's probably never going to be 100% easy. I think women have um, developed a lot in the workspace environment, mm-hmm. but then not much has changed in the domestic environment. You're absolutely right. That's the distinction. Because you can't legislate your husband doing the dishes without complaining or making a big deal about it. Um, Annabel Crabb a few years ago wrote a book called, oh, basically the tagline was, why don't we all have a wife? What, yeah. a, what every woman needs is a wife. Yeah. Uh, and she had some terrifying statistics about women at high levels, CEO-type women, who then come home and do more housework than their husband does out of a sense of guilt. I mean, these are clever, educated women. So there is still a huge... It's kind of gone a bit underground. It's a bit internalised. And mm. men are obviously not going to give up anything until they until they have to. That's right. It's the, it's the nature of the culture. Um, and we all are a slave to it, men and women. Um, but, you know, women are still doing most of the care of children and relatives. And that's all free labour. So anything that's free is, is sort of shunted one that's, way. That's right, yes. Yeah, so that's probably what I think needs to to change next um we have i've got one more question for you kate it's a little bit of a long one um um, towards the back of the book you said something about the nature of death that really struck me and i quote i know now that you can criticize a person complain about them even think you hate them but be bereft confused remorseful pierced with unbearable regret regret when they die. What That really struck me. What, what do you think lies at the core of this? Why do humans find it so hard to be in the moment with their bigger feelings? Mm. Indeed. There is something about death, isn't there, the permanence of death. Uh, that was actually about my mother, who had always said, my mother didn't love me and I didn't much love her because she was such a, a bullying mother. But... The day my grandmother died, mum came to me in tears and said, oh, grandma's dead. 